is density the solution to affordable and inclusive cities. Hi, my name is Marcin Wojciech Żebrowski, and this is the newest episode of Herbcast, my podcast about urbanism, architecture, cities, and many more. And welcome to the newest episode in English that will be about the density, smart density, and in general, the density as a solution to better and well-designed cities. This episode was made during the Urban Future Conference that took place this year in June in Stuttgart and was organized by the great team standing behind the conference. I would like to say thank you to the whole team for allowing me to be the media partner of the conference and connecting me with such a great speakers like Nama Blonder, who is my today's guest. Nama is an architect and urban planner from Canada. She co-founded Smart Density with a vision to redefine housing in a growing cities like Toronto. Nama combines architecture, urban planning and urban design to address housing affordability and promote inclusive neighborhoods. She fights housing stigma by advocating for the greater housing diversity, improved access to public transport, reduced commuting times and stronger local economies. Nama also serves on the City of Toronto's Housing Committee, the Board of Kehila, and has contributed to reports on housing affordability. She has received awards for her innovative work, including the Ontario Association of Architects Best Emerging Practice Award. And today we will discuss the density and the smart density founded by NAMA. We'll discuss the rapid change in cities that are getting less affordable. Example of Toronto, which is the fastest growing city of North America. How can you use a density as a family? Can you raise your family? Can you raise your children? Be a family in a condo? What is the role of density in our cities? And do people like clients, developers, city councils, but also architecture practices need convincing to density? Whom do we need to convince? And what arguments does NAMA use? Also, what is the cost of moving out of the city center? An example of smart cities density projects that NAMA is sharing. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation. Nama, I'm so happy to have you here on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's uh, such a big pleasure for me to cooperate with Urban Future and be able to reach out to the voices creating the and shaping the, the urban uh, agenda worldwide. And uh, I think that you are one of those voices here. Thank you. With the influence over how we design the cities with your smart density agenda. Mm -hmm. But before we dive into that, I would love to hear a bit about you, mm -hmm. some background and story. I know you've been working previously as an architect, and then you started also exploring some different things like smart density. So could you just uh, say something more about this inspiration behind what you do now? Sure. So first of all, I'm still an architect. I define myself as an architect. I probably studied what uh, and worked for 10 years of my life to become an architect. So I'm an architect and urban planner. I moved to Toronto, Canada. It will be nine years ago this summer. I moved from Tel Aviv, Israel, and I moved because Tel Aviv 
was not affordable enough. And uh, I moved to Toronto that people laugh at me. But nine years ago, Toronto was my affordable option. And since then, I've been, you know, watching it become less and less affordable. Then I realized I travel a lot. I love to travel. I have friends all over the world. And every person that I talk to from our generation, let's call it that way, talks to me about the affordability crisis in their city. So it's very much not an Israeli problem or a North American problem. It seems like housing affordability, something is not working for our generation the same way that perhaps, you know, you look at my parents, for example, both were employed by the government, so not very high salaries, were able to pay their mortgage within, I think, less than 15 years, own the the apartment they bought for us. That story does not exist today, does not exist for our generation. So it seems that housing affordability is something that really affects our generation. doesn't matter where you are. Then when you put it in the North American context, where cities were built with, you know, houses and the house with a backyard in the suburbs, And they're really lacking the density or the at least smart use of land, smart density. Then you understand that the affordability crisis has a very clear reason. We're not utilizing land in a smart way. And six years ago, I co-founded an architecture and urban planning firm called Smart Density. We're based in Toronto. And all of our projects, in a way, we are traditional, a traditional architecture and urban planning firm, but we are really working with the ticket of smart density. And that is near transit, multifamily buildings, lots of emphasis on the public realm mm. and good design. How did it happen that Toronto became less and less affordable? Definitely, if you say that you moved out from Tel Aviv, And Toronto was your affordable option. Many people might think, wow, that's surprising. But this changed. Talking about Toronto, using it as an example, can you briefly explain what processes started to happen that the situation changed for for the worse for many, I would say? So Toronto is the fastest growing city in North America. We are now bigger than Chicago. We passed Chicago in population numbers, uh, I think, two or three years ago. We're about to be bigger than Los Angeles by 2050. And it's growing thanks to mainly one reason, and that is immigration, mm. which obviously I'm, I'm part of it, right? I immigrated to, to Toronto. And when the city is growing at a pace that it's growing, and Toronto is expected to double its population by 2040, I believe, from 3 million to 6 million people, then you understand that People need housing. Now, at the same time, people are moving to Canada. They're really moving to either Toronto or Vancouver, maybe a little bit of Montreal. But no one, you know, is going after the opportunity that a big city has to offer and then move to the suburbs because, you know, it basically pushed out, right? And then Toronto has this major problem that we are not even approving, not building, approving 20% of the apartments or housing that we need. So it becomes a very simple numbers game or a numbers problem where you have more people that are looking for housing and a simple supply and demand, so prices go up. 
Another thing beyond immigration is foreign investment, where we had a huge Asian market investing and buying apartments in Toronto. And the way the system, the financing system works in Canada is that you basically need to finance the project yourself. So selling to investors is a really great way to do it because they buy pre-construction. So they buy it at a very, very early stage. What the problem with that is that you're basically not selling to the end user. Someone else is going to live in this apartment and someone else owns it. So it's like a complete disconnect. And when you sell something to an investor and not to the end user, I think by definition, you get a product, a result that is way less geared towards the end user and way more geared towards the investor. So this is a, a second, but th- these two are the main, the main issues that cause this affordability. So f- specifically to, to the investors, one of the things that happened is that the units became really, really small. And when I say small, I don't mean compact. I mean studio in one bedroom. And you and I, you know, you're from Poland, so I'm just assuming that you grew up in an apartment just like me. You know, families, you can raise your family in an apartment. In Toronto, it's really, really hard. The apartments are really, really small, bedroom-wise. And then a lot of young families are looking for a house, right? Because also it's a cultural thing in North America. And then they are willing to go really far away and buy more cars to their family instead of living in urban areas where you live in an apartment. But it's a little bit chicken and the egg because whose fault is it? Is the cultural fault or the market's fault that does not deliver those units or apartments? In North America, we call them units and here it's apartments. And I know that you you are advocating for a living density. Also, by giving an example you, yourself, I've been reading the article in which you've been interviewed, where you basically advocate that it is possible to have a family and raise the family in a, in a condo, in an apartment in the central part of Toronto, where, of course, you have this proximity to all the different services. And I think that this is also something we will just touch upon shortly, uh, talking about the smart density. But how affordable is that still? Because maybe you know an author, Leslie Kern, she was recently publishing a book about gentrification. And uh, gentrification, I think that it is definitely one of the huge opportunities and challenges at the same time. So don't you think that you are also quite a privileged person to be able to 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 afford it? Because I think that this this huge challenge for people connected with the migration, right? People moving to some places and then having this hope for opportunities. And maybe the opportunities come as well, but they pay a huge price for it. So it is a, such a complicated topic in a way. No, and you know what? Thank you so much for bringing it up. And even in the article, which is, uh, you can find it in Toronto Life and it's called My Parks Are Nicer Than Your Backyards. <laughs> And, you know, I'll just give you a really small anecdote. We mentioned in this article how much we paid for the condo, which by all means, a lot of money. <laughs> it was expensive. That's, that is exactly the thing that I said about our generation. Housing is expensive. And yes, I even mentioned that in the article that I'm aware of how privileged I am, that I didn't want it to come across like, oh, look at me, I can, you know, buy this really expensive condo. And by the way, it wasn't anything luxury, right? Like for me and you, 
you will look at my apartment and it's just regular three bedroom apartment. I grew up in a four bedroom apartment, right? Like, but I moved, when I moved to Toronto, that concept seemed, you know, I was, you know how that article came to be? I was sitting with my friend who who was born in Canada and then he's uh, an urbanist and like very passionate and brilliant. And he said to me, oh yes, but you are the radical or you are the 1%. And, And I went home and I said, I was thinking if my friend think that I'm radical and I am the 1%, we have a really big problem here, right? And it didn't mean to offend me, but he really thinks that I'm radical for living in an apartment and not owning a car. So the idea behind the article, and I mentioned in the article how much I paid for it, which was 1.15 million Canadian dollars. And I told my partner, and my partner said, oh, why do we need to mention it? And I said, you know why? Because there are couples out there who are spending this amount of money or way more, but are going to buy something far, far away from the city, two hours or not even two hours, but far away from the city in the same amount of money or probably more. And if I could get one couple to say, I have an alternative, which is buying something that is smaller Yes, more compact, yes, but not having that lifestyle of commuting 90 minutes to the city whenever they need to. And even if you give me like, oh, work from home, don't like the suburbs could never compete with the city and what the city has to offer. So I don't care about, you know, even if you work from home for two weeks out of a month. In that article, I gave an example of my very close friend that we moved to our, we we both purchased a new home in the same month and she moved to the suburbs. She had to buy another car in the same week she moved. She paid 20% more than what we paid for our apartment. So 20% more, another car, the comparison between suburbs and the city, I don't think that I necessarily paid more. Let's put mm. it that way. And what's the role of the of the density here? Because uh, when we are now discussing the cities, we had this period where people were leaving the, the city center and it happened especially in American cities. Now we have some kind of this revival of, of the city centers where people see that there are so many opportunities of staying in the city and in, in being in this proximity to, to each other and everyone. So density definitely has a big role to play. What is your understanding of density and why do you think it is important to discuss in the context of creation of the cities, not only American ones, but like worldwide? For me, density is the key for success in any project you want to call it or any urban design or master planning. Without density, there's nothing. Density is, first of all, we get the housing solution that we need. But secondly, density is what brings people to a place. And you need that critical mass in order to get retail to thrive, in order to get the public realm to be successful and, and vibrant. And we are social creatures. We look at a place and we test it by how many people like to enjoy it, right? Like we trust Google, uh, the Google Maps or Google My Business so much because we trust what other mess Mm. of people would have to say about this business. Mm. So the same way in the public realm, we test or we trust a public space by seeing how many people use it. So we have to have the density in order to get people in. And the problem with North American cities is that they spread out so much that sometimes they're just lacking the density to 
make it to make it work to have the pedestrian flow that retail needs and you have in in North America you have in smaller towns you have the main street right and the main street is this one street in the city that you get to the end of it and it feels like the end of that you're just falling off a cliff there's absolutely nothing after that street and that is because it's one street and it's not really a network and it doesn't have the critical mass that density brings to an area which is something that here in Europe you know, European cities were built around in a very compact way, in a critical mass. It's something that you land in North America and you, especially in Toronto, and you don't have that. I definitely agree. Uh, many of the European cities were lucky to be built around this uh, principle. We can uh, even discuss the, the cities in Italy, in ancient Rome, where it was all around the, the, the movement, the horse carriages or the pedestrian movement, basically. And a lot of people are inspired by those. We can, of course, mention Ian Gill, who was studying the cities there and then brought back this idea of proximity of cities for people worldwide. What was the inspiration for you? Because as you've said, you, you've been fighting for getting the architect's degree and then you've been working as an architect. But at some point, I guess you decided to create your own practice, focusing on, on the density. Why was that? Was the density not perceived as an important ingredient of the projects you've been working at before? It's a very interesting question. The name Smart Density, we named it, we knew it's going to work. I just didn't know how well <laughs> people are going to love this name. And slowly, you know, even when you talk about these things and we are sitting here, you know, we need to, and I hope the audience could relate, it's something that happened really gradually. So I've been doing this for six years. I co-founded Smart Density six years ago. It started very slowly, my partner had kept his full-time job and I started talking about these things and I really wanted to test the water. I didn't know how people are going to react. I was mm. afraid that if I'll talk about housing affordability too much, people will, you know, put me in this box of like, okay, she's the non-for-profit, works with, you know, shelters, this is her, this is what she does. And for me, it's all tied together. Housing affordability is a density is is one of the tools to achieve housing affordability. It's also a tool to achieve sustainability if it's done well, of course. But we can definitely tackle this in both ways. So smart density, it's definitely the ticket, and I've been you know talking about it very slowly and. Uh, it's so empowering to see the impact that it has. And it's, you know, even podcasts like this, right? It gives me the, the power to, to say, okay, I'm into something. I, people are connecting to this message and it's... It resonates. Exactly. When we think about the density and your work with it, could we bring in an example of a project that you introduced the density into? Do we talk about uh, transforming buildings or how would you incorporate this, this density into projects basically? So I'll share with you a project that we are so proud of. So in Canada, or specifically in Ontario, there's a massive investment in transit. First of all, we have a really long catch-up to play in comparison to European cities, something that North American cities and public transit, it's it's something that they didn't invest in it in, in the right time, uh, obviously excluding New York, uh, but I'm talking about other... Right now in Toronto, there are 44 kilometers of 
public transit being under construction. And in Los Angeles, I think it's 109. So Los Angeles is the city right now in, in North America that is investing the most in public transit. Now, we are now working on a new neighborhood near one of those new train stations. And it's a 115-acre new neighborhood, so it's a pretty massive site. It's a kilometer long. It's really, it's a new neighborhood. We can't uh, underestimate the, the scale. And there we called, and I encourage everyone to Google it or look on our website because it has some great visuals, but we came up with that approach of, and we call it the scaling down approach. Now, let me take a step back and I'll tell you a little bit of how transit-oriented communities are being developed in North America. They are very much oversized. You have even some just, you know, regular streets would be 36 meters wide, which is like we're now sitting in, in Stuttgart in Germany. I can't even point out like nothing within the city will be as wide. Their smallest, smallest streets there are 20 meters wide, which is like a typical commercial street. That is the most intimate street. And then they, you have those massive buildings with the assumption that a tall building or a tower needs to sit on this really massive building and they need to sit on a really wide street. So we called out and we said, let's scale down a little bit. We can scale down the street wall, which is the, how tall is the building facing the street. Let's scale down the blocks and let's scale down the streets. And by that, we basically said, let's, you know, we call it human scale and human speed. Let's bring it down a notch. And we also, because it's blank slate, 115 acre site, we also came up with a whole menu of street typologies. And two thirds of these streets of these neighborhoods are going to be a completely car free or car light, which in North America is almost shocking concept to bring to a community. And we got all these questions. What do you mean? How can I access the street? We're going to park emergency access, snow removal access. So we need to explain to them, yes, all of the streets have emergency access. All of the streets have snow removal access. It just means that it's not going to be dominated by a car. And even the car light streets, which here, of course, in Germany, you know, who am I to even bring it up here? But it's a truly by the landscape design and streetscape design to send a message to the car, you are not dominating this street. So this for me is smart density, is, is creating this built environment that the moment you leave, you step out of your apartment, it's something different. It is transit oriented, it is, we're achieving the density, but we also put it really people first. They're not just mm. saying that we're putting it, putting people first. And who are you working with primarily? Because to develop such a project, the, the downscaling project, I think you have to be really aligned with the investors, developers, uh, the community, the city council as well. So could you share a bit more about who do you work with and whom do you need to convince, uh, convince as well? Yes. So the, first of all, credit to our client, it's Brookfield, uh, it's an international company. I always say that we work with developers who get it. Obviously, they're not, we're not lacking any developers who don't get it, who don't understand. You know, some, I had a, a person telling me, oh, if I had a, your company, I would call it dense density. And I say, okay, that's okay. You will never be my client, but that's okay. I really want to work with developers who get it. And I say probably more no than I say yes to projects, but you know, I'm very active on LinkedIn. People could see what I believe in. People could hear me on podcasts. And even Brookfield, they said we were looking for something fresh 
and we saw your videos on LinkedIn and we saw how passionate you are and we knew that this is what the type of fresh blood that we want. So I really hope that not only that I attract the right clients, I repel the, the, wrong, <laughs> the wrong type of clients. And beyond that, that is the client and that is private sector and you don't have to, you know, dance with people you don't want to dance with, right? But with municipalities, I think specifically in this municipality, being open to, you know, now they practically need to rewrite their street standards, right? And we want to work with them to show, you know, let's do this. Let's really celebrate it. Now, this project is not even completely public yet. And it already received two awards from the Ontario Association of Architects for Public Health and Wellbeing and the World Urban Pavilion for Best Made in Canada Urban Innovation in Development. So it's really empowering to go to the municipality and say, we already received two awards for this master plan. Let's work together to make it something really exceptional. So in a way, you have the tools to use for, for the pitch to the, uh, to, <laughs> yes. to the municipality, to put it that way. But how about the funding part? Do you still need to, basically, we start this, this discussion about that you would be very happy if at least one couple reconsider their choice of moving out of the city to the suburbs. And, and you say, because the density just serves us very well. We are like, we are programmed in a way that we just need to, we really need to spend time with other people. So, so what arguments do you use uh, with your projects as well? To convince that maybe sometimes it's worth to invest even more into the project, but have this higher density and what effects will it have? I don't need to convince that, you know, better density will be better investment. Toronto is in such demand that the only thing that prevents you or, you know, really keep the buildings to the height that they are is not actually the client, is either the municipality or the community. And that brings me to a topic that there's a huge NIMBYs culture in Toronto, not in my backyard. And every city has it. I've been here in this conference for two days now. People come here from all over the world. They all share their nightmares about you know, how is this? I was uh, hearing yesterday the deputy mayor of the city of Vienna, former deputy mayor, Maria, I cannot pronounce her name, but she is amazing. And she said she was t telling us a story of like uh, to get a street pedestrianized. And she said, we all know how beautiful these streets are. And yet every time you have the same fight and the same arguments to begin with as if you have no other examples to show how successful this is. And then whatever it, it is done, everyone is so happy about it. But the process is nightmare. And I thought, oh, okay, there are NIMBYs outside of North America. But it's different kind of NIMBYs because the NIMBYs that I get to deal with are... And I just want to stop and say that I understand and acknowledge that NIMBY is a very natural feeling and real estate or the house that or home that you bought is probably the greatest investment, financial investment you would ever do in your life. So when something, a change, something new comes to the neighborhood, I understand why it is scary. However, all of the NIMBYs think that they're unique, that they have unique arguments, that It's really okay to have a project, just not here. Density belongs. And I'm not talking about like specifically, you know, 
I don't know, social housing, God forbid, or something. I'm being sarcastic, of course, but they're talking, I'm talking about like an apartment building in a low rise or single family housing neighborhood. Okay. This is the context for you. Something that for us will be, you know, I'm looking outside the window here. All I see is mid-rise buildings. But in Toronto, it's like, why are you changing my neighborhood? And we must change your neighborhood because we need to grow and we need to accommodate more people. And I'm sorry, but we can't grow in a form of one family on one lot. This ratio just cannot exist. So, you know, just last month, Toronto Council approved that instead of one family per lot, we could have four, a fourplex on each of the lots. Now, it sounds small, but for many years, all you could have done is to demolish a house and build a bigger house, but still accommodate one family. So, you know, my friend who I moved to Toronto 10 years ago and he's been practicing urban planning for, I guess, almost 30 years. And he said, you know, you take it for granted how much, but 25 years ago, even discussing that zoning change, people wouldn't even dream about it. So now we made that change. I think personally that converting it from one to four is still not enough. And uh, it's still just maintain that house look in our neighborhoods instead of something that is more critical, critical mass and density. But it is what it is, and we're doing it in baby steps, but we're at least we're doing it. Mm. But it's a huge problem in terms of NIMBY and, uh, and the NIMBY culture that mm. we have in Toronto. To summarize that, I remember you've said in this discussion as well that people living in Toronto, you have to consider the big growth of the city, that population will probably be doubled in a couple of decades. So there are some arguments for fighting for the density. How do you see the future of your work and, and smart density as a company, as an organization? What would be like your big goal? What would be the achievement you would be proud of in the future? Thank you for asking that. The neighborhood that I described to you, I think for us, and go to our website, our slogan is a new public realm of possibilities. And uh, we think that when you talk about the public realm, this is where the magic happens. This is where you can really make an impact. And you're an urban designer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is how we really want, I wish my practice would grow and has this type of an impact on the public realm. And I always say that Toronto's slogan almost is that it's a city that deals with growth like no other city. Like I've, I've seen nothing like Toronto's growth anywhere. But Toronto does not compromise on the quality of the public realm. So you will see a lot of new development, but you'll see also many small parkettes and parks and playgrounds and the level of the streetscape and materials. I should give Toronto all the credit. It's a mm. city that deals with growth without compromising on the public realm. And that is amazing. That is really a superpower for a city. So I hope, you know, Toronto is a really good city to be in. It's an amazing city and we have a lot of work ahead of us, like even the immigration numbers that made Toronto growing to the numbers that it grew is nothing even in comparison to the projection of how many immigrants we are going to have. Mm. So we have a lot of work and at least we are, you know, talking about it and aware of how much work we have and 
you know, it's just the beginning. So mm. I know it's just the beginning, but it's an inspiring beginning. It's inspiring to hear that, that you're embarking on this journey with the density agenda in heart and mind. To inspire even more, I would like to summarize with a last question about the book recommendation. Would you have anything around the topic that you could share with the listeners? Actually, not around the topic, <laughs> but I have a wonderful book. It's called The War of Art. So there's the book, mm -hmm. The Art of War, and there's the book that I'm referring to, which is The War of Art. And The War of Art is a really, it's a small book, You'll read it in two hours, I promise. And it really speaks to a greater creative calling that each of us has. And uh, sometimes we shush our creative callings or our voices <laughs> in, our, in our minds. I remember, it's embarrassing, but I'll tell it anyway, that when I started Smart Density and, you know, I, I didn't have clients. I just started one day, I woke up in the morning, I didn't have a job and we decided that I'm not looking for another job because I was, I really wanted to do this. And I remember that I just, all the negative voices, I, I used to reply like uh, out loud. I used to have a conversation, especially in the, in the shower, you know, where all the voices come up. And I remember really that I used to answer those voices. I used to say like, okay, I'll talk to you later, like not right now. And all, all of it, of course, I was talking to myself. And, uh, and this book really gave me the energy and uh, to overcome, you know, the, those voices that we have in our, in our minds of, you know, oh, you should do it, but, uh, you know, ah, but. So that's my book. I hope you read it. I tend to uh, buy uh, most of the <laughs> books recommended in this show. And given that it's over 170 episodes, I, I spent uh, some, mo <laughs> some money uh, on the books already. But, but thank you for that. I, it seems really, really interesting. I, I will definitely look. It's not expensive. At least it's not like a fancy schmancy architecture <laughs> coffee table book that's... Yeah, that, it's, that's good to hear. It's, yes. <laughs> uh, it sounds like it's a, it's a practical one. Uh, yes. So I definitely add the link to that in the episode's description and also to the smart density so people can, can follow up on that and check your work and also reach yeah. out. It's also yes. why we created this podcast for Thank people you. to reach out to you so they can get familiar with your work. Thank you very much, Nawa, for Thank joining. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Nama. And of course, if you would like to obtain more information, feel free to contact either me or Nama. You can find the links in the description of this episode, as well as the link to the book, The War of Art, recommended by Nama. One more time, big shout out to Urban Future team. And I hope to see you there because the next Urban Future will be hosted in June 2024 in Rotterdam. Thank you and talk to you soon.